This week's Sicha, this week's talk on Parsha Shreftim is a masterpiece, a piece of magnificent art. In fact, it's so magnificent that I will tell you I don't fully grasp the extent and depth of this talk at all. Uh, however, I will share it with you on the level that I am able to grasp it, and I'm sure that, we're, that when I spend the time reviewing it multiple more times, um, that I will uh, understand it at least a little bit more deeply. And it is, uh, demonstrates how there is an interweaving uh, between the different dimensions and levels of Torah study that when we understand a core concept, we begin to see how it plays out on every single level. And you'll see this as we uh, go through this, uh, this talk. And it's, it's uh, based on a pasuk, on a verse in Parsha Shreftim, which says, that a matter is determined based on two witnesses, and which establishes a, a well-known rule in Jewish law that we need two witnesses in order to establish uh, something in court. A single witness is not enough. Now, the rabbi begins by um, discussing that there are two types of witnesses. There's one type of witness called Eidebirer. Witnesses who are witnesses of verification. That's the, the way I'm going to choose to translate Eidebirer. They are verifying a matter at hand. So for example, if Reuven borrows money from Shimon, the loan took place because Reuven borrowed money and Shimon lent it to him. The loan took place. Whether there are witnesses or not is, is, is somewhat irrelevant to the fact that the loan took place. It happens independently of the witnesses. So then what is the value of the witnesses that the Torah says, Al that the matter will be established based on the witnesses? That simply means that if for any reason there's an argument or there's a denial by one of the parties and they go to court, then we will call upon the witnesses who witnessed the loan to verify what happened. So what happened, happened outside independently of the witnesses. And the witnesses are just a, there for purposes of verification. In Hebrew, they are called Eide Birer. And then there is another type of uh, uh, witnesses. They're known as Eide Kium. And we're going to translate this as establishing witnesses, meaning that they're not just witnesses who are verifying later on that something happened earlier on, but they're actually establishing by their witnessing the event, they are establishing the, val the validity of the event and the value of the event, which without which the Torah does not consider that event to be a valid event. Where do we find such a circumstance? We find such a circumstance when it comes to Kiddushin, when it comes to a man betrothing a woman which is typically done under a chuppah, where a man places a ring on a, on a, on a woman's uh, uh, finger and says, that you are betrothed to me with this ring according to the laws of Moses and Israel. Now, there must be witnesses there, and the witnesses there are not there simply to verify that if one day someone questions whether they're legally married according to Jewish law, that they verify that. No, they're adekium they are actually establishing the betrothal. And if there are no witnesses there, according to Jewish law, the betrothal has no value. So it is true uh, that physically the man put a ring on a woman and said some words to her. 
But as far as Jew, uh, Jewish law is concerned, they are not betrothed, which would then mean they, they, they don't need a get, they don't need a bill of divorce. So over here, um, um, regarding Eide Kiyom, establishing witnesses, when the Torah says, Al Pishnayim Edim, based on two witnesses, Yochum Dover, a matter is established, it means literally established, that they establish the, the, the testimony. So we find then that there are, we already are hearing some differences between these two types of um, uh, uh, witnesses. There's another difference in the outcome of, of these two types of witnesses, uh, which I sort of spelled out already. And that is that the A.D. Beer witnesses who are a verification, they become really, they really become witnesses when they show up in court at the time of verification. Until then, they're just people who are observing something. But they don't take on the, 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 the title of witnesses because they, they're not acting in any way as a witness. They just happen to be seeing something. But their, their, uh, their, their, their position legally as a witness happens when they're in court. Whereas A.D. Kiyom, when someone is a, a witness, which is an establishing witness, such as in the case of, um, of a betrothal, where the very seeing of these two uh, witnesses seeing the placement and the, um, of, of the ring and, and, the, uh, and the gentleman saying to the woman the, the, the words of betrothal, that actually makes the betrothal in that moment, so they become witnesses at the event. They are witnesses at the event, not, not six months later in court when there's an issue. And as the Ragged Shavragoyim, who I, I, I've mentioned in the past, the one who, who the Rebbe received smicha from, who was a, uh, a, a, a genius, who the Rebbe refer, um, um, quotes quite often um, from, his, from his Talmudic teachings, that um, he asks the question, why is it that Ede Kedushin witnesses of a betrothal don't require cross-examination. We always know that if two witnesses come to court, you can't just accept their testimony. You have to cross-examine them, check out whether they're, 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 che they're checking out together, they have the same story, they, they saw the same thing, they're not lying, so we cross-examine them heavily. Now, that is true for A.D. Birer, for, for, uh, for witnesses who are verifying an event. When it comes to witnesses who are not verifying an event, they're, uh, um, they're actually creating the event we don't have any cross-examination. In fact, they're not even in court, right? But, so, but how can we rely on them if they're not cross-examined? And the answer is because verifying witnesses, witnesses who saw an event and they're irrelevant, they're not even witnesses yet until there's, uh, they, they are brought to court, called to court to, to, te to testify, they are created as witnesses by the court in court. So therefore, they have to be cross-examined for the court to determine that these are kosher witnesses. But witnesses who are A.D. Birur, A.D. Kiyom, they are witnesses who are establishing the event. Who creates them as witnesses? The Torah does. In the very moment that they see the event, the Torah says, if you see this particular event of a betrothal, you are now witnesses who are creating the betrothal. And so if, if God's creating them as, as witnesses, there, there's, there's, no, uh, there's no need for any form of, uh, of cross-examination. It's something that God establishes, and they're, and they're kosher witnesses. It, we have another interesting law where we can see a difference between these two types of witnesses. There's a concept in Jewish law called teich kedei dibor, that if someone says something, they have just a few seconds to retract what they said. It's the amount of time that one can greet their teacher. There's a little bit of an argument about how many words it is uh, of time, that the, the amount of time that it takes for someone to say three or four words. So it's basically just a few seconds a person always has to retract from something that they've said. There's one exception. 
if a man betroths a woman, the moment he finishes the betrothal, there's no retraction. He doesn't even have the three or four seconds that normally um, one has in Jewish law. So there's a there, there's a, a, a great Spanish commentator on the Talmud from, uh, I don't remember exactly when, uh, but uh, from a few hundred years ago, um, I think even more than that. Um, but anyway, he, um, he says that he gives an explanation as to why it is that by betrothal, there's no, re- there's no room for retraction at all. And he says, because in general, other matters that people say are not so serious. So when they're not so serious, a person always has, um, he's saying it, but it, it may be a little bit more flippant than it, than, than it should be. And therefore, we give him at least a few seconds to retract. If after he hears himself, he's, oh, no, and he can retract. However, um, a betrothal is a serious commitment someone's making. So when someone makes such a serious commitment, they've thought it through, and therefore, they're fully aligned with what they're saying. And because when they say it, we know that they're fully aligned with what they're saying, then there's no room for retraction. So the rabbi asks a question about the Ron's explanation. He says, if that were the case, let's say I were to say to you that I would like to gift you with $1,000, right? Or I'd like to gift you with something that I have. I'm gifting you. I'm giving you a gift, right? When does that item that I gift you become yours? Does it become yours the moment I gift it to you? Or does it become yours only a few seconds after the retractable space of time has expired? Now, according to Jewish law, the fact is that the moment I gift it to you, it's yours. Even though I can retract it, but the moment I give it to you, it becomes yours. But according to the way the Ran just explained this, that I never, that when we, you know, when we gift something to someone or any other type of uh, language that we use, because it's not so serious, we're not fully committed to it until after the time of retraction, and therefore we have time for retraction, then it shouldn't be yours until the time of, re- uh, of retractability is over. But Jewish law clearly uh, demonstrates otherwise. So therefore, the, the Rebbe gives another explanation as to, based on what we already learned, we, we, we can understand as to the difference between these two types of witnesses, we can understand why betrothal is different and you can't retract. And that is because since the Kiddushin, the betrothal, is um, the witnesses by a betrothal are adekium, they are witnesses of establishment, they are establishing the betrothal. So no longer is the gentleman himself the one who is creating the betrothal. But there are other people involved in making the betrothal happen. So his retraction is not enough. He can't just retract. It's not, it's not just him. So therefore, the fact that there are witnesses who are, aid- or are, or are establishing witnesses, it's irretractable. Because this is larger than just his statement. In most other cases, uh, uh, legal cases, when I make a statement and there are witnesses, the witnesses are, have no relevance yet. They're not even considered to be legally as witnesses until there may be a court case later on. And so I'm the one who's establishing the gift to you. And if I'm establishing the gift to you, I can retract it. So again, we can, as I've explained in the past, when we get to the core of an understanding of a concept, we can see how that concept begins to explain any types of questions or conflicts that we may have. Okay, so now we begin the fun. Now we're going to dive deep. We're going to go as we, as uh, um, the rebel um, often uh, does into the other side which is not the revealed part of the Torah, but the, 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 uh, the hidden part of the inner part of Torah, which is the spiritual side of the Torah. Um, 
And, and the Rebbe, the Rebbe um, begins by saying that everything that we have in law, which as it plays out in this physical world in a very literal way, um, is actually aligned with, and in a certain respect is an outcome of, the way things exist in a spiritual state. So we're going to see, and if you'd like, you can write these four things down, so you can follow along and see how we, where we answer them as we, as we go along. We're going to see how in the spiritual state of things, there are also two types of witnesses. Number one. Number two, we're going to see how betrothal witnesses are establishing witnesses in a spiritual sense as well, not just in the literal betro- act of betrothal of a man to a woman, but in the conceptual idea of what betrothal stands for. And then we're going to see number three, how establishing witnesses um, become witnesses at the time of the event itself. The watching of the event is what makes them witnesses. Whereas verifying witnesses um, only, become witnesses, only become witnesses if at a later time. And how establishing witnesses are stronger. So strong that there's no retraction, no retraction can be made from them. These are the four things that we're going to see in a spiritual sense. And I'm going to ask you to uh, fasten your seatbelt here and hold on tight. And I'm going to tell you to do what, uh, what, what, how, um, what I've done as I've studied this. I went, as I studied this, I, uh, a few things. I, I've understood it on, a, on, my, on the level I understand it. And that's the level I will be able to share with you. I also understood that there's something so magnificent here that I'm not fully consciously grasping, but enough for me to know that there is something really magnificent here. And that itself has great value. And so you don't need to necessarily grasp everything, but get a sense of the majesty and the symmetry and the connection between multiple layers playing out at any time. And then also to understand how this all ties in and reveals the deep purpose of you and I and of creation. Okay, so there's a verse in the, in the book of Yeshayahu Anavi that says, Atem You are my witnesses, says God. Who who are who are my witnesses? It says you are my witness. Who are you? Who's the you? So the Zohar gives two explanations to who the you, you is. One explanation he gives is you, the Jewish people. That the prophet Yeshayahu is talking to the Jewish people. He says the Jewish people are and, and, and like uh, people have told me, um, thank you for testifying. When they see me wearing a yarmulke, they see I'm a religious person. So uh, they tell me thank you for testifying. People actually see the Jewish people as the testimony of God. And then there is. Another explanation the Zohar gives, and that is Shamayim Va'aris, heaven and earth. Um, and, and that's from a, a verse in the Torah, where the Torah says, uh, Moshe says, That I will um, give testimony to, uh, use as testimony today, heaven and earth. Heaven and earth will testify. So that heaven and earth are testimony to, to God. We have to understand what this, what, what this all means. So there are two types of witnesses. Right? Here we see that there are two types of witnesses. And we're going to see how the Jewish people being witnesses to God are establishing witnesses. And we'll, understand, we'll, we'll understand this a little bit better. And the witnesses to God, that there is a God, which is heaven and earth, are verifying witnesses. You see, the Alter Rebbe, in a Hasidic discourse, he explains that witnesses are only necessary for matters which are concealed. If it's, it's concealed, you need witnesses to reveal, right, that which is concealed. Um, 
but something that um, is, is, is exposed is noticeable to everyone. You don't need witnesses for It's noticeable. He, he goes further to say that there are certain things which are not immediately noticeable to everyone, but they will eventually be noticed. It's just a matter of time and thought that people or, or you know that people will notice it. It's it's called a davra davidi legluye, something that will eventually be noticed. Something that's going to eventually be noticed also does need uh, witnesses. What we needs witnesses something which is concealed. So the rabbi explains, and here we're going to go a little bit deeper. Um, that there are three ways in which we experience, in which we interact with the divine um, and experience the divine. And you'll understand why I'm hesitating using the word experience in a minute. The, the, the first way a person experiences the divine is in a state called memalikal almin. That is a state where God um, deliberately shows up for a human being in a fashion that is digestible for the limits of the human being. So the human being can actually be aware of God. Because if God were just to show up in his infinite state, a finite being that only has limited tools to interact and experience anything would never be able to absorb that in any way. So God shows up in, in a manner which is generally a finite a, a, a matter that where he constricts himself and contracts himself so that he shows up in a limited manner so we can digest the awareness of God. And that is really the, the level of energy that God puts into the world and is absorbed by the world. It can be absorbed by the world, digested by the world, because God minimizes himself to the point that it's on a level that the humanity can actually benefit from it, be energized by it, and become aware of it. Then you have Seviv Kalaman. Seviv Kalaman is the level of, of God which is not digestible. It's a level of God where God remains in a state of his infinite. He doesn't hide himself enough so that he appears to be in a limited fashion and therefore we can, um, we can appreciate it. He actually remains in, 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 in a more infinite state, so much so that we can't absorb that level of awareness of God and that, 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 that level of God where God does not minimize himself, just remains aloof. It encompasses us, which is what soviv means, but it doesn't permeate. It doesn't, we cannot digest it. We can't absorb it. Now, um, and then, and then there is God as God is in his being, in his essence. God as in, in God's essential state, which is pure infinity, of which there is no, there are no words and no definitions and no way or manner for us to experience as human beings to be able to experience that and in any way, shape, or form. So the first level of mamalakalamin, where God um, interacts with us on a level that we can digest the awareness of God, that is noticeable. In fact, we have a verse that says, "Me from my flesh I see God." That that people just by by observing the world, and this isn't exclusive to the Jewish people, um, the righteous Gentiles of the world all acknowledge God. Right? There are billions of people in the world that acknowledge God, that there is a God, um, because we see it from the world around us. We also see it as as as, as our as sages teach us, "Ma nefesh es just like a soul fills a body, so too God fills the world. 
that just like we know that what's energizing the body, what's the difference between a body that's alive and a body that's dead? That's a vibrant soul that's in it. The, the, the intersection between the two, the coexistence of the two. The moment the soul leaves the body, then the body, which is really the same, it's just missing its battery pack, the soul. And, it, and, and, we, uh, and just like we notice that within ourselves, we notice that the world is the very same way. Um, that is, so that is very noticeable. <clears throat> then you have Seviv calm, and Seviv is the level of God which we cannot digest. However, even though we can't digest it, and we can't really relate to it, from the fact that we know we have some experience of God on the first level, which we can absorb, we know that this is really only an aspect of something much greater. So even our mind, which cannot grasp something that shows up in an infinite manner, like the second level of Savior Kalman, but the mind can appreciate that there is an idea of the infinite, as we talk about the infinite all the time. So while the mind won't be able to grasp it, the mind can understand that there's something greater. In, in, in the same respect to the way I uh, introduced this, this Sikha, that, there may, that, that it will at least give you an awareness that there's something really magnificent over here, even though I may not be fully grasping it. And that also is, while it may not be noticeable immediately, eventually a person notices that this aspect of God also, that there's something, there's a greater level of God, which is, the, we'll say, the source or the precursor to me experiencing a very limited fashion of God. And then there is Atmos. Atmos is the essence of God. And Atmos is completely hidden. Completely hidden. And because the essence is sort of like if I were to ask you to define to me what your essence is, what is the essence of your being? And it's almost elusive. Um, even though we are finite beings, God, who is an infinite being, it's, it's entirely elusive. And actually, the second we begin to use words of definition to define essence, we are already missing the point because essence is, is undefinable. So therefore, it's hidden. So how do we at least know that there is an essential presence of God, for that we need testimony, something that's testifying that there is an essential presence of God. And we just discussed it. There are two ways that we can have testimony. One is A.D. Birer. One is um, testimony, which is a verification. And that is, where do we see, and that's heaven and earth. Because heaven and earth, number one, they are entities which God created in, at creation, and they continue endlessly. Sort of like when the sun rises and sets every day. It never diminishes in any way, shape, or form. So we see an element of the infinite within creation. Because it's something God creates, and with God's infinite power of creation, these bodies, if you will, just continue on and on endlessly. Not only that, but we also find uh, that within the world, there are an endless number of creations. So again, we see an experience of the infinite from heaven and earth. So heaven and earth... Uh, verify that, in fact, there is some essential state of God, which is just pure infinity, which is expressed, uh, which is a, which is being uh, testified by heaven and earth. And then you have adikim. Adikim are not verifying um, witnesses, but they are establishing witnesses. That means that they are establishing the essence of God in this world, in our reality. Um, those who create, those who integrate the divine in this world, which are the Jewish souls. Neshama Yisrael, the Jewish souls, the Jewish people. And why is it that we can do that? We can do that because we, our divine soul, is rooted 
its root is in atzmos, in the essence of God. And therefore, being that we are rooted in atzmos, we have the power to draw down atzmos, the essence of God, into the world. Now, of course, we do that through Torah and mitzvahs, as we're going to discuss, uh, through, divine th- through divine expressions of the divine. Now, now, this already demonstrates to us a deeper reason why Kiddushin, uh, betrothal, um, um, it, the witnesses by a betrothal are adikium, are establishing witnesses. They are not just verifying witnesses. Because what, is, what are one of the primary reasons why uh, we get married? To fulfill the mitzvah of pru or vuv, to be, multiple, uh, to, be, uh, uh, be, to be fruitful and multiply. And the idea of a person having a child who then has a child, who then has a child for eternity, as we as we bless a, a bride and groom when they get married, it should be a binyan, adeyad, it should be an eternal edifice, meaning it should be from generation to generation to generation. And in fact, if you're here and I'm here, we come from an endless gener- endless generations, back to Adam, the first man. So that is an expression of the infinite. So that's drawing every act of betrothal is drawing the infinite power of God into the world. Uh, and, and leading to the birth of an endless number of generations. And so that is establishing the essence of God in this world. And so therefore, um, we, um, therefore, Kedushin is associated with the idea of establishing, not just verifying, but establishing. Okay. So what is what uh, the testimony of the Jewish people as establishing God in this world what is that adding to the testimony of heaven and earth, which is verifying that the, the essence of God exists? So here's, a, here, here's an idea, which is an idea that we're going to have to do our best to wrap our head around. And that is that heaven and earth reveal that there is an infinite entity on earth in creation. There's an infinite entity in creation. That means that there is the world. There is a created reality called the world, and there also is an infinite being. There are, there are two existences. There's God, and there's creation. And creation is aware that there's an infinite being. But the Jewish people come to reveal something much more um, um, much more profound. And this is such a profound idea. It's an idea that takes many years of thinking to digest. And that is the idea which in Hebrew we call Ein Oid Malvade, which is in our Alenu prayer. There is none other than him. What does that mean, there is none other than him? That means that there isn't a world and God, and we in the world recognize that there is a God. There is actually only God. Say, what do you mean there is only God? The only reason why we are absolutely sure that there is a world, that there is existence, that there is all, that there are all of the, that there is the entire physical world that we experience is only because God has hidden himself has um, pulled himself back so that we have the uh, we, we, we develop a sense of independence of self were God to be revealed as an infinite being we would see everything as a pure expression of the divine nothing would have an identity of its own it would just be a, 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 an expression of the divine the fact that there is me and there is you and there's there, there are books and our bookshelves, and our desks, and chairs, and trees, and flowers, and the entire universe. All of that, all of this multiplicity, is only experienced because 
the singularity of God is hidden from us. Um, and this is a very important point to know. When the Jewish people serve as witnesses, we're not testifying that there is an essential um, state of God called the infinite, which, which is in the world. We are, we, we, become, we are testifying that there is nothing other than the infinite essential being of God, which is this infinite being, and nothing else. And the appearance of everything else is only because we are not noticing um, or in our, in our, with our flesh, our fle- uh, eyes of flesh, we cannot notice this infinite presence. So to understand this a little bit better, um, the Rebbe explains that the, there's a verse in Tehillim that says, Eretz Yara Vishakata, that the earth first feared and then it became quiet. What is it referring to? So it's referring to before the giving of the Torah, the world was in a state of fear. It was in a weak state. So the Eretz Yara, it first was in a, in a state of fear, it was weak. But after the Torah was given, the world became quiet, became still. It, cre- it got strength. It gave the, the giving of the Torah gave the world strength. And we're talking about the existence of the world's strength. And therefore, it quieted down, became stable. So the Rebbe asks, the existence of the world is physical. We know that the world in Hebrew, the Hebrew word for world is olam. Olam is a, a, a terminology that is from the word helam, which means hidden. Because the entirety of the world really is an environment where God is hidden, as I just explained, and therefore the world appears to be an independent existence. So giving the Torah, which is an exposure of the divine, should have broken or weakened the hidden, the hiding that the world creates, the olam, the hiddenness, and that should have weakened the world, not strengthened the world, because if the entity of the world is that we hide God, and that's how the world does exist, the more revelation there is, the weaker the world becomes. In fact, we know that when God gave the, the, the Torah, the Ten Commandments, it says even a bird didn't chirp, meaning the world in some respect became weakened and shut down. It couldn't even express itself because there was great exposure of the divine. Now, it's also true that God made a condition when he first created the world, that if you keep the Torah, the world will be sustained. And if you don't keep the, world, the Torah, the world will not be sustained. So we see that the Torah gives validity and uh, gives legitimacy and justification for the world to exist. Otherwise, the world has no reason to exist. But the world already existed before God gave the Torah. So it, it's here and it's established. And now God's showing up with a great divine exposure, which is a contradiction and a threat to the, to, 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 um, to the world. So here the Rebbe begins to explain that and here's a deep philosophical concept, okay? It, it's a concept in the Hebrew, it's called Ein Koyach Chaser Poel, or Koyach Chaser Poel. By humanity, Koyach, which means intention, or potentiality, before something is actually materialized. That Koyach, Chaser, it lacks Poel, actuality. And materialization. The fact that I intend to do something doesn't mean I did it, Right? As, as the saying in English goes, right? Uh, good intentions, right? I'm not going to uh, express it fully. Um, or, uh, you know, the path to is uh, paved with good intentions. 
Uh, we know intentions don't get things done. There's a big gap between an intention and a creation of, you know, the, the making of something, the realization of something. Um, likewise, a thought is an idea, but for that idea to be materialized, someone has to actually do something. So they're two separate things. Potential lacks actual. They are not one. But by God, in Koyach Hoserpoil, Koyach, potential, does not lack actual. The moment God thinks something, it is. And let me explain it this way. We live in a linear world. A linear world is a world of the finite, where things happen in time. I think of something, I figure out how to do it, then I materialize it. Everything happens independently, separately. But by God, there is no linear reality. Everything is now. The thought and the realization, everything happens in the very same moment. There is no breakdown of moments. So therefore, when God... Um, when God conceives an idea, so to speak, whatever that means, but when, when there is an intention, the intention is, it already is actualized in the intention itself. There's no, there's no separation. Remember, the whole idea of using the words intention and, and actualization for God, and materialization for God, really is inappropriate. It doesn't exist. Because it's really all the same thing. There, there isn't this distinction when it comes to God. So if the intention of God creating the world, as we're taught, is, was for the purpose that there should be a Torah and a Jewish people, and the Jewish people fulfilling, studying and fulfilling the Torah, then that is the existence of the world. The intention is the existence. Even before anything happens, like nothing has to happen. The intention is, is the happening, as far as God's concerned. Which would then mean that if the intention of the world was really for the purpose of Torah and B'nai Yisrael, Torah and the Jewish people, then the true existence of the world is not its physical dimension. The true existence of the world is its purpose. Because that was the purpose, the intention, and therefore that's actualization. Now, you and I may not notice that because there are many blockages to us experiencing this. So consciously we don't see this, but the Rebbe is trying to reveal to us that the real existence of the world, even though it's not, not a material existence, it's a value existence, and it's the value of Torah and the value of the Jewish people interacting with the Torah. So, um, and, and the Rebbe says, and we can see this actually in Jewish law. We can, and he's taking us now back out from the spiritual to the concrete uh, of Jewish law. There's a law on, that on Shabbos, one is not allowed to carry something from one domain to another. That's forbidden. So if someone wants to carry uh, some food from one domain to another, they're not allowed to. It's, for, it's forbidden. However, we know that every mitzvah has um, ha, um, has parameters and 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 limits. For example, when when for, for theft, you have to steal the value of a pruta, whatever that value is today. But it has to be the value. Of, if you if someone steals less than a pruta, while it's still a wrong thing to do, but they are not accountable, they can't be held accountable in a Jewish court because it's not considered to be significant enough. Likewise, if someone's fasting on Yom Kippur, there's a minimal measurement which someone has to eat for it to be considered eating. Does that mean someone can eat less than that measurement? No. But to be held accountable, um, that they would have to eat that measurement. Likewise, when someone's carrying something from one domain to another, there's a measurement. Now, what happens if someone has a vessel, and in the vessel he has a, a, some food, but that food is less than the measurement 
of um, of what's forbidden to carry, and he carries it from one doing to another. So the law is that he's exempt, meaning that he cannot be held accountable or tried in any way for, for that violation. However, what happens if we look at the vessel itself? Well, the food was below the, 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 the minimal measurement. The vessel was a complete vessel, and it was not below the measurement of a vessel. And were one to carry such a vessel from one doing to another, they would be in violation of Shabbos. However, he's not in violation, because being that the vessel is not his intention, it's not his intention to move the vessel, to carry the vessel. His intention was really to carry the food. The vessel is only a means to the, to the food. So then this, the, the vessel becomes secondary to the food, demonstrating that even though physically he has violated Shabbos, if you were to measure this physically, because the vessel is of a physical um, size, that is forbidden to carry from one domain to another, being that his intention is to carry the food, the vessel, the material matter of the vessel disappears. It actually becomes insignificant, even in practical Jewish law, demonstrating that that the, the purpose is actually the true existence of the world we live in. Now, everything in Pneumius HaTorah, everything in the uh, deeper aspect of the Torah, in the spiritual side of the Torah, in the Hasidic side of the Torah, is reflected um, in the revealed side. And I just gave you one demonstration. The Rabbi gives another demonstration. Another demonstration is that one is not allowed to burn kudshin, which are, are, are consecrated um, meat. If someone consecrated an animal to be brought as a sacrifice in the temple, and so sometimes it happens that uh, it, it, it was held beyond a certain time limit when it was supposed to be eaten within. And if it's, if it's held beyond, beyond if it wasn't eaten by, within that time limit, then the meat has to be burned. Now, if it's on Yom Tiv, one is not allowed to burn the meat for the sake of divine instruction to burn the meat. Because the idea of burning something on Shabbos, you're not, allowed, you're not allowed to burn anything other than the, the temple was a general exception. But um, on Yom Tiv, we know that you're allowed to cook. So you're allowed to feed a fire, an oven with, with firewood in order to cook food. However, that is for the purpose of a person. But for the purpose of, the, of a divine purpose, you wait till after Yom Tiv. Now, um, the, the, this law also applies when it comes to truma. Truma is a, our special food, a uh, special a percentage of, of crops that a farmer needs to give to a Kohen, and it has a holy status to it. It takes on Kedusha, a holy status to it. If it becomes impure, it touches something which is spiritually impure, so then now it's, it's, it's impure and it needs to be burned. It cannot be burned on Yom Tov either. So Tosfis, the one of the primary commentators on Gemara Talmud, asks the question, what happens if the person wants to use this Teruma, or this Kadshim, this uh, uh, consecrated food, meat that has to be burned, he wants to use it as his fire to cook food on Yom Tif. And you're allowed to cook food on Yom Tif. So you should be able to burn it that way. So um, he explains, the, the, I mean, the answer to this question is that since there is also, a, and he explains that since there's also a divine necessity to burn it, so even though he'll be using it for his personal uh, necessity of firewood, of fueling the fire, so he can cook food, but there's still a divine necessity which already exists before he wanted to cook his food of having this burned. And so therefore the human necessity is nullified before the divine necessity. 
And therefore, you can't say, I'm using it for my food. Because your human necessity, which is sort of like the material, the human need, which is the physical need that a person has, becomes secondary to the purpose need. So, because the true purpose of all is the divine purpose. And when revealed, it nullifies the external purpose. So, we're seeing how this idea is demonstrated of, um, of intentions. Now, now we understand um, why um, the existence of the world, when the Torah was given, became strengthened. Because the true existence of the world is the Torah. That's its true. Pur- that's the purpose that God created the world, and therefore, that is the world. Because intention by God is action. That is the world, and the material world is just an external um, showing of a deeper purpose. And so, therefore, the world became stronger when when the Torah was given. But one can ask: uh, the purpose of creation began at creation. Right? And God only revealed the Torah later on at the giving of the Torah. So why now did God did the did the world get quiet and stable? If God created the world at, at, at the beginning of creation, right? Uh, for us it's now 5,782 years ago. God created the world then. He gave the Torah 2448 years later, in the year 2448. When God created the world, why did he create the world? With an intention. The intention was the Torah and the Jewish people. If intention is action, then why do we need to wait for the giving of the Torah? It's already, the purpose is already actualized. The, Torah should, the world should have been in a quiet state the moment God created the world. See, here the Rebbe explains something magnificent and something very important for us to know in our purpose in this world. And that is this idea that... that in that potential does not lack the materialization is only true by God. But as we explained, we, you and I live in a linear world. And while we do have some, some access to, because we, we do have a divine soul and therefore we do have access to, which is one of the main parts of this talk, that we actually integrate atzmos, the essence of God in this world, but we do live in a world that shows up in a linear fashion. So we don't experience things in a non-linear way, but specifically in a linear way. And we, they, they, we, we experience everything um, in, in, in a world whose existence appears to be physical. And, they, uh, and, and, and what the reason why God created the world, what is the reason why God created the world? God created the world because God wanted that the world on its own should come to the recognition that of its true existence, which is that it was created with a divine purpose. And the divine purpose is that it be that it be aligned with the will and the wisdom of the divine, with God. And the Torah brings the world closer to its goal. Because by the giving of the Torah and the commandments, when we study Torah, we are studying the wisdom of the Torah and we are doing acts of mitzvahs, acts which are divine. Um, we, are, we, we are giving, we, we on our own now, not imposed by God, but we on our own 
are manifesting, if you will, we are creating the that the potential is actually being actualized and we're just discovering the true existence of the universe. That's the entire purpose of the world. In other words, God, when God created the world, even though he created with the intention of the purpose of Torah and the Jewish people, until the Jewish people engage with the Torah on their own as created beings in the physical world, in this physical dimension, and within that context, begin to become aware of the fact that the true existence of the world is Torah and the divine purpose, until then God's mission and purpose for creation has not been fulfilled. Because in a certain way, God set himself up in a cash 22. Because God can't do this. He needs us to do it. That's the whole purpose. The whole purpose is for us on our own to come to that realization. So now we can understand the difference between the testimony of the heaven and earth and the testimony of the Jewish souls. Because God desired, as in the in the, in, in the Hasidic uh, um, um, uh, 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 vernacular, Dira God wanted a dwelling place in this world, in this lowly world that we live in, for his for his essence. What does that mean? What does that mean? That means that we, the worldly beings, should slowly become aware of and integrate all of our phys- all of the, this physical world, integrate within it the divine the divine purpose and the divine wisdom, so that the world becomes more and more aware of the fact that it really is divine. However, and, and this is reflected by heaven and earth, um, by the infinite power of the heaven and earth, but the infinite power that lies within the heaven and earth is one that God imposed, that God created. So God imposed right, the, his infinite presence in the fact that heaven and earth continue to exist infinitely and that they have infinite um, beings that show up within their realms. But that's all God's doing. And that, which means then, it's not a self-realization that the world has come to. So what happens when God imposes the, 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 his, his infinite presence um, through creation is that creation is aware of the fact that there's an infinite being. But the, the creation is also aware of the fact that I am also. There's a physical world and there's the divine, the infinite. I exist and God exists. There are two entities. But once we begin to realize the entire purpose of creation, so we achieve um, the, the intention. What is the intention? That we align ourselves with the Torah and the, we the Jewish people align ourselves with the Torah and the mitzvahs. That is our avodah. That is the entire service or work that we have to do in this world. So then we are integrating this divine, uh, infinite, uh, essential being into the physical reality, demonstrating to physical reality that I don't buy into you. You are here for a purpose. That's the divine. That's what happens every time we do a mitzvah. And then we are actually fulfilling the integration that God wants of being able to be integrated into an environment where he is naturally hidden, which is the environment of the world, world being called olam in Hebrew, which means hidden. So the testimony of heaven and earth doesn't itself reveal God. God's revealing himself in the heaven and earth. It's imposed by God. And so therefore the world remains a world. 
it remains self-aware and in a state of hiddenness and also aware that there's a God. Um, and so what's going to happen? When is that going to change? When will the hiddenness, the, the, the hiddenness of the world, the facade of the world which hides God going to uh, be, be, be lifted? When Mashiach comes. So basically, the testimony heaven and earth is giving now is really not doing anything. Because we still live in a, in, in a world of reality of blockage. Their testimony is going to happen when Mashiach comes, in court, so to speak, much later on. In the same way that verifying um, witnesses will only become witnesses when they're in court. When Mashiach comes, we're going to say, ah, oh, now I really understand why, you know, the, 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 this, these entities of heaven and earth, now they existed eternally. However, the testimony of the Jewish people, every single time that you or I study Torah, as we're doing right now, in this very moment, what we're doing is we are integrating, because we're having this conversation, and this thought, we're going through this thought process, we are integrating the essence of Almighty God through the study of His Torah in this world through our minds and through all of the channels and vehicles we're using to convey this. And right now, the essence of God is being integrated in the world. Now you may say, oh, but I don't see it. That's a personal blockage because we're looking through our body, the eyes, and our, and our soul. The essence of our soul sees it. The essence of our soul sees it. We don't see it in our conscious level. But because it is right now. Because we are, we are establishing witnesses. We're establishing it this second. And every second that we study Torah, do a mitzvah. When Mashiach comes, it's only going to reveal what we created way back. Right now. So just as testimony, um, we know that we just discussed testimony in a spiritual sense, so too we have testimony in our personal service of God. And this, is a, 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 this brings it down to our concrete behavior and lives. The, the Rebbe breaks down into three levels, just like you broke down before, the three levels of Mamalakalam and Sevakalam and, 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 and Atzmas. That there is the avoida, the service of God, alpitam vadas, which is according to our understanding. Things make sense. We understand why we should do this. It makes a lot of sense, and therefore we do it. We grasp it. Our minds understand it, so we enjoy it. It's relatable. It's digestible. That's one way of serving God. And that is God revealed, right? It doesn't need testimony, such a mitzvah. You don't, we don't need any testimony for that. Everyone understands why, why, why you shouldn't steal, why you shouldn't murder, why one should honor their, their parents, etc. And therefore it should be done. Um, then there is a higher level, that's the of Mesir Nefesh. That is the service of self-sacrifice. That someone is willing to give up of themselves on behalf of this mitzvah, to sacrifice on behalf of doing a mitzvah. Now, Mesir Nefesh sacrificing sometimes, usually sacrificing, it, 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 we're talking about someone operating in a realm which is super rational. It's not rational. I'm just committed to this absolutely. And therefore, my commitment to it is so strong that I, I'm, I'm absolutely doing this. However, sometimes that commitment also comes from the influence of instruction that I know that Judaism says I should do this. And therefore, I'm doing it. But then there is a third level. And the third level is a Mesir, a self-sacrifice, 
which comes with, with, with absolutely no calculations whatsoever. The essence of my soul knows this to be true. And even though I can't explain it, and I, I, and I don't even understand it, I just know it. And therefore, I do it without any calculations whatsoever. I am fully 100% doing this without any calculations. Money is not a calculation. Time is not a calculation. Even my existence is not a calculation. And, and we've seen Sadiqim who have done this, uh, such as, um, uh, um, we'll say, the, the, the first that comes to mind is the Friedrich previous, the previous Rebbe, who literally sacrificed his life on behalf of Jewry in Russia and was almost, in fact, killed because of it. That is this absolute Mesir nefesh, where this is the right thing to do. I get nothing for it. I, I, I just do it because it's the right thing. The rational mind would say, why should you sacrifice your life? By saving your life, maybe you can help more. This is how we get to come through all these calculations. The mind is very creative. But the absolute self-sacrifice, which comes out of the expression of our essence, which our essence is from God's essence, is it's attached to the, this essential infinite being, there are no calculations. There is just absolute commitment. And this, on this level, the, the, um, the prophet Yishayo said, Atem Eidai, you are my witnesses. That you Jewish people, when you step up and you are willing to reveal that this world is not a material world, but it's the divine world, which requires sometimes that you do things which are very, which would seem to be very irrational, but actually super rational. And you make commitments to things that any level-headed person would never commit to because they're too calculated and rational. That is when you're revealing the deepest level of my being. Um, now, when we reveal the true existence of Torah and mitzvahs, what ends up happening is when we reveal the true intention of the world, right, which is the true existence of the world, then the facade existence just simply falls away. It disappears. We, we stop seeing it. And so the lesson is that when we go to do a mitzvah, that we can go to do a mitzvah in a, in a, in a rational way, where we, you know, in a reasonable way, with um, some level of uh, calculation. You know, can I afford it? Can I this? Do I have time for it? Is it going to impede on my schedule too much? Etc. Etc. And then there is then there is a person who who says I'm committed to this mitzvah no matter what. I know God wants me to do this, and I am absolutely going to do it. And what happens when we do that is that we in fact find that the world, actually, the facade, the material world that seemed to have said until now this is not going to work, falls away. It actually completely falls away. It becomes nullified in the presence of the truth of what the existence of the world really is. And that's really, if I may say, where the magic really happens. And specifically, the Aveda, the service of the Etzim HaNeshama, the service that comes out of the essence of our soul, which can bring um, the, this experience um, to the world, and then ultimately um, brings to the world the integration of the essence of God because we are revealing the essence of our soul, which is really simply an emanation of the essence of God. I hope you found this uh, um, insightful. I, ho I also hope that you found the final message to be um, relevant and inspiring and uh, speaking to you as we approach a new year.